We thank you that we can trust in you. What a powerful line about you being hid from us in that one hymn we were singing. The eyes of sinful men cannot see. We still struggle with sin. We still struggle to see you sometimes in this life as we face uh, the battles that a sinful world brings to us. But your glory is still there. We pray as we come before you this morning, Lord, that we would be a people capable of seeing your glory because of your spirit dwelling within us, because of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, because of the grace that you, we have received from you. And so we ask that you lead us in this moment in time. You help us as we look into your word, as we read words written by another disciple of yours, another follower of yours. And as we understand how those words, those truths apply to us in our day and in our lives. Just continue to lead us, Lord. We will be a thankful people. We'll be a thankful people because we will see your purposes. We'll understand better your plans or at least be able to submit to uh, the way that you are leading us through your plans. And we will be aware of your love for us. Yes, even in the midst of all that we face in this life. So direct our minds, our hearts this morning, Lord. May we hear from you through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19 is the passage we're looking at this morning. We have been getting a spiritual tune-up and understanding that it's a lot more than simply us being tweaked a little bit. That's not the spiritual tune-up we need. We need to be aware, more aware of the Spirit of God working in us and through us. And that is what makes us a spiritual people. The Spirit of God in us. Are you feeling it? I can't tell by looking at your eyes because you're just a little dragon this morning maybe. I don't know. But the Spirit of God is working in our lives. He's willing to work in us and through us. And we've been talking about it and we've seen the uniformity in the way the Scripture teaches us to cooperate with the Lord. The aggressive, active putting off of sin. There are those things that we just know we should not be doing. In fact, the world out there knows we should not be doing them. Sinful acts, and we just say no to those things in a, in a very direct and, and aggressive way. We put those things off. And there are things in your life maybe in particular in your life, that the Spirit is going to be coming alongside of you and I personally and poking us. Poking us, that's the modern day term from the internet or something. But it's convicting us and saying, you, I don't want you to do this. And we respond. 
best case scenario. We respond immediately. We go, no, God, if you don't want me involved in that, no. If you're convicting me of that sin, no. And, and there's this very definite active response where we go, no more to that. If you don't want it, Lord, I don't either. And that's the first half that we see presented and we saw it during in, in various passages, various scriptures. And then there's this passive putting on. Now I say passive because we read about the fruit of the Spirit. But it's not like we can just pick that fruit and stick it in our pocket. That fruit comes from the Lord. And so it, it's not going directly at the fruit, but it's saying, okay, Lord, I want to nurture the relationship I have with you. I want to walk more closely with you. I want to be submissive so that when you move, I move. So that when you lead, I follow. So that as you are trying to work in this world, I'm a co-laborer with you. Somebody said something this week. What was it he said about? Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember now. It was Brock. He said, God's my co-pilot. I said, maybe you're his co-pilot. You know, because a lot of times we, we, we see things from this is what we're doing. But can we switch that and can we think about it as I am trying to work along with the Lord. I am trying to follow his impulses, his movements, that still small voice. And so that's why we say we see it through scripture, this active, aggressive putting away of sin and then this listening, submissive willingness to follow his movement in our lives. And it's so important that we understand this and that we Work on this because we won't grow. Doesn't matter how long we've been in the church, doesn't matter how long we've known the Lord, we won't be growing and we won't be doing what he ha wants us to do if we're not following these instructions from his word. And so we're challenged. We need the Lord. We need his help. So that what is supernatural can become natural in our lives. And it's hard. It's hard. So hard, so hard to be like Jesus. That's a line from a Rich Mullins song. And I would say, no, it's impossible. I remember using this quote somewhere before. This one I'm going to say next. And I can't remember where it was from. And I couldn't find it this week. But... Remember that, that quote, no man has ever lived the Christian life but one, Jesus Christ. And no one can live the Christian life today except for Christ through you. And so we need to accept that. We're in second position here always, but it's beautiful when we see God's character in us in ourselves, in our lives, because of Christ's presence. So we go about things in his way. We follow his processes because it's impossible for us to be holy. It's impossible for us to be spiritual, but it's possible for him 
his spirit to show holiness through us. And the impossibility of us living the Christian life becomes especially apparent in the hard times, doesn't it? When circumstances are difficult, when we have challenges, when we have people maybe coming up against us or the circumstances that we face uh, are unjust and it becomes difficult to have the fruit of the Spirit blossoming and coming out of our, our lives. Because usually there's a lot of anger in our hearts, isn't there? When we see injustice and when it's turned against us. But I suppose that's why the Lord brings along these difficulties, isn't it? To bring us back to the reality of the situation that we're living in. To bring us back to him. An absolute trust and dependence on him for our lives. So in this next passage, Peter treats the subject of of suffering specifically for those who are in Christ, who have Christ's spirit in them. And once again, as we study this passage, we're going to see a, a wonderful uniformity in all of Scripture with what he says, other, other authors in the Scripture say, with how Jesus faced suffering when he was here in this world. You would think there's some deep connection between all of these writers and Jesus. And there was, there is, isn't there? It's the Spirit of God. Spirit of God inspired people to write these words. The Spirit of God worked in them and through them. And we see that uniformity in in people who are trying to live for God with His Spirit in them. We see them looking a lot like Jesus Christ who was God in this world. And so it's incredible as we, we think about the scriptures and how it talks about us having suffering in our lives and not escaping that suffering but living through that suffering in a God-honoring way. It's incredible that there's this false gospel being preached using this book as its source material and it's saying, no, 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 if you're in a relationship with God, everything should be good. You should not be suffering. You should not face any kind of hardship. You just pray and God will take it away. You have enough faith. And you think, wait a minute. The scriptures, the authoritative word of God that is unchanging continues to teach about us and our suffering. And we go, how on earth? Did they get a message like that? Well, it's obviously what everybody wants to hear, what everybody wants to think. But it's not what God says. It's not what we see. It's not what we see in this life, is it? It's not what we experience from day to day. There is suffering. And you know, we could go back to that oldest, very personal story of suffering. In the book of Job, one of the oldest personal stories in the Bible about suffering, 
And we think about what he said and how he faced it. And you know, that, one, that one statement, he, he, he said, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Do sparks fly upward? They fly upward. We had a little campfire last night. They go upward. As sure as they go upward, man will face trouble. There will be problems. There'll be hardship. You will suffer. There, how is, how's everybody feeling now? Still just as happy? Okay, good, good. You look at the components of this life. You look around you at what's going on. Selfish people in a sinful world. You know when they talk about mechanics, they go, there are too many moving parts. Yeah. Too many moving parts, and they're all broken. (laughs) That's why there's suffering in this world. That's why there's no way it's going to be escaped. And even as Christians who are redeemed, we struggle with selfishness. And we struggle with why we need to suffer. If it only made sense. Well, here Peter. Peter says it does. Peter, the man who walked with Jesus. The man who had trouble understanding suffering and injustice. When the Lord said, I will suffer. I am going to suffer. Started to give details about that suffering. What did Peter do? Stepped in and said, not so, Lord. But he's come to terms with it here. We always learn better when we see somebody coming from our side, you know, the struggles that we have, and and we see how God changed their perspective. So let's read what he says. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though some strange, uh, something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. You share Christ's sufferings. It doesn't say share in. What am I reading? You share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Four things we're going to see here. Peter says, don't be shocked by suffering. Don't 
be shaken by suffering. Don't be ashamed or unsure. And this first verse, we're going to look at it and see what he says. He says, don't be shocked by suffering's presence in the world and in your life. Suffering is the most natural thing. Don't be surprised by the fiery trial like it's something strange. Suffering happens. Suffering will happen. Suffering is always happening. It's always happening even for the Christian. It's so normal, so natural that we have things like Murphy's Law. I was thinking about that this week as I was reading through and I thought, man, I haven't heard about Murphy's Law for a long time. Must be an old-fashioned thing. From when I was a kid, you know, it's the, the basic tenet is if something can go wrong, it will. It's a truism, an adage, a proverb, because that's what people see in the world. It just seems that things more naturally go wrong than go right. And that's true. That's true. And for the Christian, it's even more of an expectation that things will go wrong because we see what's going on in this world. We understand the impact of sin. It's not just that we struggle with our own selfishness. We know that things around us constantly tend or trend toward chaos. And also, we've been called to swim upstream. We've been called to go against the current of what is easy, what the world is saying, this is what we should do. We've been called to to swim upstream against public opinion, against public life. But also personally, we've been called to swim upstream against the desires of the flesh, what comes sinfully natural to us. And as I said, we've been called to be naturally supernatural, to allow God's spirit to work through us. We were called, as we saw at the beginning of of this chapter, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. Tune your minds to be like Christ. Hey, I'm going to go against sin, against what is natural. Not just in the world. You know, that would be easier if it was just the world, but also in my own heart. Those patterns that I build up over my life, my life without the Lord, where I just go and do the thing that comes natural, I'm going to go against that. I'm going to arm myself with this kind of thinking. Lord, I want to do what you want to do through me. And Jesus tells us what that life will be like. John 15, verse 18 to 25. He said to his disciples, his followers, if the world hates you, if the world, that system, that sinful system that Satan is in power of and the people who are a part of that system. If it hates you, remember, 
they hated me. He talks about a servant not being above his master. Here I am in this world and I'm suffering as I fight against sin. You will fight. You will suffer. They will hate you. And so he calls people, deny yourself, deny your self-protection in just going along with what everybody else is doing. Deny yourself your own sinful desires and follow me. Take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow me. And this is the first step in being able to live in hardship with hope. Live in hardship with hope. We understand that suffering is a part of that. We go, it makes sense because God has told us this is what's going to be going on. It'll help us understand the difficulties and the injustices and it'll help us to rejoice even more when things go well. We'll go, whoa, this is a blessing because things shouldn't be going this well apart from God and his grace. I remember hearing a story about this lady. My brother was telling me, it was a lady in his church and, and how she got saved. And shortly after she got saved, she went into a store and was mistreated by the clerk. I don't know what it was said or harsh words. And it was like it didn't affect her because she walked out of there going, it makes sense. It sort of went right by her because she's saying, that's something that proves everything I've just committed my life to right now. We forget about that when we've been Christians for a while, don't we? That every hardship, every injustice that we face is one more thing that says Christ is real. This gospel that has saved you is true. Because it says this world is filled with sin and injustice and you're going to get hit by it. She walked away from that situation going, wow, isn't that great? When that's not natural, that's not normal. But she was so enamored with the fact that truth, the truth of the gospel was true. Can we have relief from suffering? Yeah, when we understand that it makes sense and it's going to be there. And more so, it can turn to rejoicing. I'm going to read the verse. I was just going to mention it, but I think I'll read it. Matthew 5, 12, Sermon on the Mount. This is the initial message that Jesus gave. As he, he tells people, about the kingdom of God in this world or how they're to be living kingdom principles in the world. And in verse 12, he says this at the end of those blesseds. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Actually, it starts in verse 11 when he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my account. 
And so we see, this is where it starts in coming to terms with suffering. Yeah, it's, it's going to be there. It's according to truth. Not the truth of the world. Not the wishful thinking of the world. But the truth of what God, the creator, says. Yeah, there should be and there will be suffering in this world. But don't worry about it. It's part of your blessing. To see that suffering, to understand it, boom, head on like that. But you know what else he says? He says in those verses in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice. Well, the second thing, after don't be shocked by suffering's presence, is don't be shaken by suffering's power. Suffering has power? It does. Let's read the verses 14, or sorry, 13 and 14. It says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God's, and the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we expect it. We accept it. We know that suffering is a part of this life. It's a part of the Christian life. But sometimes what happens for us as followers of Christ is we take the suffering, but with a woe is me attitude, right? We do. We carry it. And we go, oh, here I am suffering for the Lord. But that's not, that's not what the scripture tells us to do. It's what we all do a lot of times. We take on that martyr complex and throughout scripture, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, what Peter's seeing here and what we'll see in other passages said is that we're to have joy, rejoice. We're to rejoice. Many times when we think about the power of suffering, we just think about its weight, how it just keeps coming at us, how it's the thing that we wake up in the night and think about. Things bother us, injustices, and, and we get ticked off, and, and it seems so powerful. It just keeps coming and coming. I think about when we first went to Peru. There were all sorts of things that were really different and hard, but it didn't matter because we'd just gotten there. We kept thinking, this is what being a missionary is all about. It's great. And you walk into one of the many lines that you have to get into in a third world country, and you'd be standing there in these lines, and not only would you be waiting in line, but then there'd be people budding in line. And I'd get to the front of the line, and I, I would go to buy bread, and I'd be ready to do that, some little kid or some old lady or somebody would butt in the way. They come walking in and they go, oh, there's a gringo. I can take advantage of him. <laughs> and they would slip in there and try and, and I'd go home at the beginning and I'd say, you'd never guess what happened to me. Well, that wore off. That this is what we're here for. We're here to transform the culture with Jesus Christ. I mean, it got to the end where sometimes I grabbed the money. I didn't put it in my pocket. 
but I would, I would start to get upset because you can only take so much yourself, you, naturally. But that's not what we're called to do. We will be overcome by the power of suffering. But what Paul is, or Peter is talking about here is a different kind of power of suffering. He tells us to rejoice. You know what suffering's power is in the life of a Christian? When hardship comes, we worship more. We're transformed. We're more thankful people. We're people who are pointed in God's direction because we're trying to figure out sometimes just how it is we're supposed to rejoice because it is impossible, naturally speaking. And so we look to God and we say, God, help me. James says it too. In the very first verses of his letter to the believers, this is James half-brother to Jesus, leader of the church in Jerusalem. They're facing persecution. In fact, the people, most of the people left. He stayed, others stayed. He died. He died. And he says in the the second verse of his letter, count it all joy. When you face various trials, all sorts of situations, injustices. He's not saying it's fair, but he's saying this is how we're supposed to handle it. This is what we're supposed to do when we go, I don't feel like rejoicing. And we don't. It's not saying that all of a sudden, it be, but we're, we're called to rejoice. And the only way we can do that is the Spirit of God connecting with, the Spirit of God in us connecting with God in heaven through his power. And so, so we worship. We worship. And we understand that we're walking as Christ would have us walk. We read in Philippians 4.13, we're participating in the sufferings of Christ. And we understand this fellowship that is so hard for us to understand while we live in this life. Until we suffer. And we realize what the power of suffering is in a believer's life. Because it brings us into fellowship with Christ. And that little part I misread about, uh, what, what did I say? I said, you share in Christ's suffering? That's so impersonal. We share Christ's sufferings. And we could go to Colossians 1.24. It's one you might want to jot down and, and meditate on later. Colossians 1.24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Paul says. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Paul says, as I live this life out, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And he just hints at something that's going on. One of these sort of mysterious things that 
we have these connections that we have with Christ because we're in him and he's in us. He says we're, we're filling up, we're finishing off, we're completing Christ's suffering in this world. We, us, you and I. Now what's that mean? Does that mean that when he died on the cross it wasn't enough? We have to bring this salvation thing together? No, not at all. When Christ died on the cross, when he suffered for our sins, he paid it all. He said, I am, fi- or, <laughs> not, I am finished. That would have been us. He said, it is finished. The work, the saving work is done. I've paid for their sins. Paid in full, complete. But this connection that we have with Christ this connection that we cannot explain, we can only read about and understand a little bit more and a little bit more, says that Christ is in us, that we are in Christ. In fact, the connection is, it's a baptism. We're immersed into him. And he's the head of the church. And we're his body. And that's a mystery. It's a mystery we can't completely understand. But that connection is so deep that Christ is still suffering in this world through us, through you and I. Because we're his body. And so Paul says, this is the the intimacy that we have That there's still more suffering for Christ to do in this world through us. And he says, you know, we're we're filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. We understand. Not just that we can be content to suffer. It makes sense. God has called us to this. That he's been being glorified through us, but that we participate in his sufferings, us, the body of Christ, the church in the world today. We're not completing his saving work. <laughs> no, that, that, is, that is done. But we're involved in what Christ is doing. We are what Christ is doing, especially especially in this area of suffering. It's going to make this statement later, but I'll make it now. We, we sort of think, I want to follow Jesus. I want, to, I want to be saved. I want to be a redeemed follower of the Lord. I want his death on the cross to apply to me. I want Jesus, but I don't want the suffering part. That's 90% of who Christ was in this world. He was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He, He suffered in this world. Even before the cross, more than any of us can understand. But then there's the cross. And so we realize the connection, the mysterious connection, the intimacy 
that we have with Christ through suffering. Don't be shocked. My suffering's power. Oh, not simply the power as it keeps coming at us, but the power to intimately connect us with our Savior. Don't be ashamed at suffering's appearance. Let's read verses 15 and 16. It says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Kind of goes from one extreme to the other, doesn't it? A murderer, a murderer or a meddler. There's all kinds of, of sins that we can get involved in. And guess what? When we sin, we suffer too, right? Peter's saying, don't get caught up in living for this world and sinning whatever point on the dial from murder to meddling just getting involved in things we shouldn't get involved in because you'll suffer then and you'll be ashamed for it and rightly so i know it happens to me all the time and i realize yeah i'm suffering but i i brought that on myself And a big part of my suffering right now is because I realized how bad I am and I'm off track with the Lord. So don't be ashamed when suffering appears because you've done the wrong thing. But also don't be ashamed at suffering's appearance when you've done the right thing. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You know, there are times when even as Christians, when we're doing the right thing and people insult us, people push us away, even maybe other people who are supposed to be Christians will look down at you because you've done something. And you know what? Maybe it doesn't turn out right. Maybe you're going to suffer more for it. Maybe you'll receive insult from the world or from people in the church. But Peter's saying, don't be ashamed. If you're suffering for the name of Christ, if you're being called a Christian, a Christ one, or a a Christ follower, that's what the term meant. And it started out as an insult to begin with, right? The Christians back in the day, they didn't say, hey, let's give ourselves a name. Let's buy a t-shirt and we'll all be Christians. No. In Antioch, the world out there started calling them Christ ones or little Christs because they were trying to act like Christ. And they looked like Christ in the way they act and they showed his character. And it was an insult. And Peter's saying, don't be ashamed. You Christians, you believe this. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And there's lots in what we believe that people will try and make us ashamed for because it's nothing like what the world believes. The 
politically correct, popular opinion type thoughts that are out there. And people will laugh, people will scoff, but don't be ashamed. But make sure also, the first part, right? That you're not ashamed for doing the wrong things, for lashing out, for being a meddler, or up to a murderer, sinning. We don't have to fight for ourselves. We don't have to make ourselves bigger. That we, we know that's not a part of it. We, God's big. Our God is big. Christ lives in us. We have his spirit. That's enough. That's enough. Don't be ashamed. Paul, in Philippians chapter 1, you remember what happened. He was writing Philippians from the jail. He was persecuted by the Jews, by Rome. But in that chapter, he was saying, there are even people who are preaching the gospel who are trying to make things harder for me. We don't know what that, what all that, what that involved completely. We don't know. But you think of it, sometimes that's what we do as a church, don't we? The church of Jesus Christ in this world. We, we spend time taking pot shots at people and, and putting them down. Because look, things aren't going well for them, obviously. God's not blessing them. And it's sort of like Paul's in jail. These guys were preaching, somehow making it harder for him. It was like, you know, kicking him while he's down. And what does he say? He says, you know what? At least they're preaching Christ. Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will all turn out for my deliverance. All of this is a part of my salvation. Did everything go well for Paul when he was in prison? <laughs> we would say that last thing was, was a bad thing, you know. He was, he was killed. The, Ro- the Romans executed him. That's what history tells us. But he was still right, wasn't he? It was all a part of his deliverance, all a part of his salvation. Even that last part, where it seemed like sin and death had the victory. No. That was all part of his salvation. Don't be ashamed with suffering's appearance. Continue to rejoice. Last point, don't be unsure of suffering's purpose. Verses 17 to 19. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will it be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Therefore, let those of us who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know, when suffering comes into our lives, 
there's this unfortunate tendency that we have. <laughs> it's so natural to question God, his power, his purposes. And sometimes we, we, we do it with two simple words. Why me? You know, we question, God, what are you, this can't be. But we've already gone through all this other part. We see that suffering is going to happen to everybody. Rain falls in the just and the unjust. We, we're not surprised. And we're not shocked by suffering's power because we know God has a purpose in that power. Intimacy with his son. Intimacy through his spirit. We understand that there is a great purpose So we don't have to ask, God, who are you? What are you doing? He's really great. He's really good, just like that children's prayer. You probably all repeated at one time or another. He's great. He's good. Suffering doesn't make us happy. Not at first but it's part of the ultimate purpose, the greater purpose to glorify God by living out his truth in the world. You know, we, we get confused about that. And I remember when I was in Bible college, they, they talked about it. They said there's this argument going on about what the purpose is. Is it a soteriological purpose, a salvation purpose for this world? Or is it a doxological, a a God-glorifying purpose to this world? And neither one of those things are bad things, right? But if we get them off track, sorry, if we get them wrong, we get off track. We go in the wrong direction. And you know, the salvation purpose of God is high on the list. God wants to bring people to himself. He wants to save them. That's why Christ came, obviously. Very important. But the purpose, the purpose, and this could be the only purpose, is this doxological purpose that God be worshipped. It has to be in first place. It has to be. Because it's the only thing that can be true. That God deserves all worship, all praise, all glory, all honor, because everything came from Him. But you know, we always have this man centered perspective that we kind of slide off on, and it's about us. Even as Christians, we, we kind of drift back toward that. It's all about us. Sometimes we talk about our salvation and we start talking about it as if, you know, the whole point of everything was so that I get saved. And we miss out on the grace of it all. No, it's about God. And it's his goodness and it's his mercy. And that's why he was willing to send his son into the world to pay for your sin, for my sin. And bring us to himself. Because of his great love. And for his glory. 
And as we continue to struggle through this life, he continues to get us back on track with this. Because there are so many times in a day that you and I start thinking it's about us. And we think, I shouldn't suffer, I shouldn't. And this suffering that comes is a reminder of priority, of purpose, of what's important. And it's us who need to line up with God and his purposes. In Proverbs 3, 12 says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And this is what Peter's talking about here. He says, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Remember, folks, we suffer, and sometimes it's, it's God just getting us on track. Maybe there's a failure, sin in your life, maybe. There always is. And he's constantly, with our suffering, guiding us back on track and getting our minds back to what is, who is most important. You know what? That's a sign of God's love for us when he disciplines us. But that's Proverbs. That's, that's the Old Testament, right? It's all grace now, right? Except Hebrews repeats those verses, that verse from Proverbs, and then adds in, it's just like with an earthly father. They love their kids and so they teach them. So they train them. That's the that's discipline. And so they'll discipline them corporally as well. And it hurts. I don't know which more, when they're physically or just emotionally, when they're told they're wrong. And we can identify with them. Because when God uses suffering in our lives to get us on track, to, to bring us more into his likeness and the image of his son. What do we do? Do we submit or do we talk back? Do we talk back like our kids do? Or do we say, oh, thank you, Lord. I would like to think that we got to this place where we don't talk back, where we willingly accept, where we understand priority and we understand what it means when we say God is God. He's the absolute authority. We find him our refuge because we have come to terms with that. That whatever he does, even though I don't like it, even though I may suffer, it is good. We go back to that Old, old story of Job. You remember the line? You've heard it. Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. He come to terms with that. God is God. It's his purposes. It's all about his glory. And it will turn out for my good. Don't be unsure about suffering's purposes in this world, but also in our lives. We're way off when it comes to holiness. Way off. 
fact, in those words, it says, if the righteous is scarcely saved by the skin of our teeth, not because we're good people. In fact, we have the same problems, the exact same problems as those people out there. But it's because of Christ. It's because of Christ. And so we accept the fact that the good falls on the just and the unjust and we understand that we don't have any justice, any righteousness ourselves. It's just what we have once again in Christ. And this is what grace is all about. And so we live with a proper understanding of grace. We accept the struggle. We accept the suffering. We see its purpose. And God continues to shape us as we say, okay, Lord, you take me through this. I will face it and I will do my best to give all glory to you. And my best isn't good enough, but Christ in me will carry me forward, will allow me to withstand the suffering and give glory to you. And I thought of those verses in Hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about Moses and his faith. It says he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth to be found in Christ, to be found with Christ than all the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward, the true reward. And so by faith he left Egypt, was not afraid of the anger of the king, and he endured seeing him who is invisible. Yes, we want to be like Jesus. But it can only happen as we accept the sufferings of Jesus in the right way. And know it's his good work, his great purposes. And that will bring us joy. Father, we want to give you glory in these lives. And we have been confronted by this truth that it is through suffering, is through challenges. Help us, Lord, to face suffering, injustice, struggles, even with our own selves, not in our own strength. but in relationship with submitting to your plan, your purposes, submitting to your spirit in our lives. Lord, we realize we are too weak, we're too sinful to honor you in this world. But Lord, help us to give up our lives to you. Help us to find that joy 
that rejoicing in the worship, in the intimacy that comes through being willing to face suffering with you. Lord, you are good. As it says there in that verse in Hebrews, you're invisible too. Though the eyes of sinful man thy glory cannot see. You are holy though, Lord. And you invite us into holiness. And we grow most in this pathway, in this process of becoming holy through the hardships we face. Help us to, like your son, look to the joy that is before us. By faith, believe in your salvation. Believe in all that you have given to us in Christ. All that we are in Christ. And glorify you in the time that we have here. We pray this in your name. Amen.